How is your state of financial wellness? How is your financial wellness affecting you personally, physically, and mentally? What is financial wellness? Well, that's what we're talking about on today's Queer Money, sponsored by Prudential Financial. We're joined by financial therapist and financial wellness advocate for Prudential, Amanda Clayman, to talk about Prudential's 2018 financial wellness census and Prudential's deeper dive, The Cut, exploring financial wellness within diverse communities, about the LGBTQ community and how we can all achieve financial wellness. Amanda is a widely recognized leader in the field of financial therapy, is a psychotherapist and money coach who, as you'll soon hear, has coached many people in our community through the Actors Fund, a national human services organization. As Prudential's financial wellness advocate, Amanda is sharing her expertise to help Americans better understand the connections between money and their personal well-being. For more information about financial wellness and how to achieve it, please visit prudential.com forward slash campaign forward slash state hyphen of hyphen us. Now, on with the show. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. Welcome, Amanda Clayman, to Queer Money. We're excited to have you. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Great. So why did Prudential choose to do the 2018 Financial Wellness Census? Could you give us some background on that, please? Yeah. So Prudential has always been very deep in the field of research and analytics and using what they discover is happening in the country and in people's financial lives in order to really tailor their products and their response. And when it comes to the 2018 Financial Wellness Census, what they wanted to do was look at both the objective and the subjective health of Americans today. Historically, we've learned a lot about sort of what it is people are struggling, but not paid maybe as much attention to how that struggle is experienced in their lives. Wonderful. And why did they decide to highlight the LGBT community specifically in this particular study? When Prudential set out to do the cut, they were looking at the unique aspects of of various people and communities to try to see how these different factors may present or show up as the financial challenges that people are responding to in their own lives. So when it came to the LGBTQ community is... The questions were, is there something in this experience that makes one's financial life different, that presents different challenges, and what it is that folks might want to know or work on in order to meet those challenges? Gotcha. I absolutely love that. You know, on a regular basis, whether it's here on Queer Money or in our Queer Money Facebook group, even people in our own community oftentimes say, well, what's the difference for money when when you're a, a queer person? And although John and I have some knowledge as to unique stories that we have heard or our own experiences, it's nice to have the empirical data there that shows that what we like to say is that 80% of it is the same, but 20% of it is unique because of the communities in which we interact or live within or identify with, that can have an impact on how we earn, how we spend what we're attracted to financially, what we're maybe not attracted to financially. Absolutely. And I would say too, in particular with the LGBTQ community, it is a rapidly shifting and evolving set of circumstances. I mean, if we look at certain sort of institutional elements, like being able to get married, being able to have spousal benefits or retirement benefits that you share with a a deceased partner. Like these are things that have a huge impact in individuals' lives. And it's not just what does the law say or what does the law say today? 
it's also just how do we incorporate different ideas of, of role models or what a life cycle looks like, especially if queer people are growing up with heterosexual cis parents, you know, their model for how a life is supposed to look. This may be something that that someone is really creating for themselves and and will want to go to their community in order to express what it is they're they're grappling with and hear how others are doing it. Exactly. I think that's so important. I think that's one of the challenges that David and I have found in trying to engage the LGBT community with its money is that unfortunately we don't have a lot of sort of role models. We don't have a lot of older LGBT people that we can kind of watch because we didn't have marriage until a couple of years ago. Uh, long-term relationships uh, for LGBT people were often in the closet, for especially when we were growing up as kids. So now that we're able to sort of have this out and open discussion, I think it's great that you're part of this discussion and that Prudential is trying to dig in deeper to help us figure out how we can get from financial insecurity to financial security, hopefully as quickly as possible. Right. I'm so glad that your your podcast and your the different forums that you use to engage with your community exist because I think it's so important for people to open up this conversation. You know, it's it's not an easy conversation, I think, for most people. But then when you add different elements, like, you know, we looked at LGBTQ communities, we looked at caregiver communities, like when people are dealing with unique circumstances that impact their financial lives and their their lives in general, you really do want to be able to go to other people like you who will mm-hmm. understand what yeah. it is you're, you're trying to work on and be able to not just give you sort of practical advice and support, but to say like, I get it. This is what's hard. I see what's hard and I, <laughs> I understand. Absolutely. Now, Amanda, I think that you've, you have a little bit of experience working with the queer community. Is that right? <laughs> I do. I've had a very high proportion, I would say, of queer clients. I worked for a number of years running the financial wellness program at the Actors Fund. And there are, of course, a lot of people in that professional community who identify as queer. And so I've seen lots of different ways that people manage the different family structures, lots of different challenges related to like episodic work and things actually that we're seeing really creep into things that people are dealing with in a larger economic way as well now. Yeah, that's what it was interesting is when John and I were digging into the specific numbers, we were surprised, but also not surprised when we saw the percentage of individuals in the LGBT community who responded saying they were working in the entertainment mm-hmm. industry. So it's nice that you have kind of that foot in that space as well that gives you some experience. And we appreciate that. We appreciate that you have been working with queer clients trying to help them with their finances as well. Absolutely. I think it also helps that I have really practiced largely out of New York and Los Angeles, which just means it's in those geographical areas. It is quite the norm. You know, Mm -hmm. like I look at my kids growing up with so many same-sex parents in their classrooms and if I live in a a bubble, I think it's a a pretty nice bubble. I was going to say, it sounds like a nice bubble. So So I know for David and me that there were some, definitely some stats that stood out to us in the cut regarding the LGBT community. What stood out to you? I was sort of surprised when I saw that only 27% of LGBTQ respondents uh, have an employer-sponsored retirement savings account. I really would have thought that that would have been higher. I mean, some of it may, we don't have a lot of information here when we're we're looking at these statistics. Like we don't know how many people are working, simply working in fields where their employer doesn't offer that. 
which right. could be what's driving that number, but sort of looking at at what a disadvantage that is for people in terms of what it means for their tax burden, you know, because the nice thing about employer sponsored retirement plans like a 401k is that it reduces your taxable burden on your income. Um, so it may mean that people who don't have these accounts are are paying higher taxes and combining that with not being able to get to make the progress that they would have been able to make if they had had that. And I think the difference is like it was 27% for the LGBTQ community compared to 41% of non-LGBTQ respondents. So that's a big difference. Very big. I think one of the things that kind of struck me that may coincide with that number is the number of, I think, specifically LGBTQ women who are not working full-time jobs. They're working either jobs that are part-time or they may be working multiple jobs to make up that full-time pay. And so it kind of makes sense that if you're working part-time or you're working kind of as a, maybe as a freelancer or you're trying to gather your income from multiple sources, oftentimes those kind of benefits like an employer-sponsored plan simply aren't there. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And for me, looking at the cut, I had so many questions. Like I appreciate as a clinician and a practitioner having this information because for me, it certainly gives us some measurements, which are helpful, but it also makes me ask more informed questions or to look out for different things. So to investigate that. That's the benefit of my work is that I get to use this information to investigate why that could be, like what's going on in people's lives that's creating this kind of a a gap in the progress that people are making financially. And, And for Prudential, it means sort of what can we develop or how do we engage communities or is there a product that that can sort of answer that need? And then for me, I I am so curious about what's driving it. How do we balance between just sort of institutional or or structural issues that are challenging for people, but differentiating that from the piece that is the individual responsibility in terms of what can we do to improve the circumstances with the things that are in our control. Absolutely. So what do you think we need to do in our, we as in the LGBTQ community need to do in our day-to-day lives to sort of achieve this financial wellness that we're all seeking? Gosh, there's so much because I I think one of the challenges when we talk about like achieving financial wellness is where does financial wellness fit in the scope of all of the other things that we're trying to work on and achieve in our lives? And I work with a lot of people who are in, I'd say all of the people that I work with are in some degree of financial distress. And one of the biggest challenges then to, to sort of putting money into the picture is how does that sort of compete with all the other things that you're trying to work on or pay attention to in mm-hmm. your life? And sometimes most of us are just trying to get by day to day. And I, I think that that's sort of if I was interpreting the information here that we see in the cut, I would say this all reads to me like a strong present time orientation. And what I mean by that is people who are really looking at just what's happening, what they need to take care of today, this week, this month, maybe over the next six months, but really don't have a solid picture of the future that they're working toward. And some of that may go back to what we were talking about in the beginning in terms of like just the the picture of what a queer life looks like. Does one 
envision long-term partnership? Does one envision a career that has a predictable sort of trajectory? All of these things that speak to how we think of ourselves relative to our future. And A, young people aren't thinking about that as much as people who are getting older. But B, people who don't see that representation, who don't see role models for themselves, may just not be able to fill in all of the blank parts of that picture in order to come up with something that that is solid enough that they can connect with to then be able to build out the steps that go along with the financial component that's going to get them there. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So what we need to do is I think, first of all, take stock of what's happening, say, what are the things that compete with me being able to really look at money in a more holistic way or being able to be a little bit more future casted? And what are the things that that are pain points in my life? So like how much distress is this causing? Because otherwise it doesn't come onto our to-do list because we have plenty of other things that we need to get to. And to start to really organize around those things and then find people because there are people, right? There are many, many people who can provide a great example in the queer community of all different kinds of of life choices and financial choices that hopefully can really speak to people and they can maybe even form a sort of mentorship relationship with and start to connect with it so that they can build build out that vision for themselves. Absolutely. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, I, 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 we talked about representation, not oftentimes not happening outside of our community, but we can look to see someone inside, and there are there are some examples, like you said. I, I really like that idea of mentorship. Financial mentorship is probably a good one. So, as you're listening to this, if you're struggling, like Amanda says, and you're concerned and want to make some changes, maybe there is someone in your community. I know our community struggles to talk about money even more so than many other communities. Maybe you can break down that barrier (laughs) and start talking to someone you know that you looked up to and you admire and you know that they have a little bit better financial situation. Ask them some of the things that they've done or that they're doing to improve their lives. Mm-hmm. And what I love about what you guys are doing is that you are really providing a beacon and a platform. Um, so you are being visible in terms of saying, hey, this is who we are. We are also interested in talking about money. <laughs> like we want to think about like, what does it mean to be financially stable or successful or healthy? Hey, let's get together and, and talk about that. And when you do that, like it's you don't always have or need to have a, a sort of aim. Like not everything is it has an end result in something as formal as mentorship, but even just like starting a conversation helps people to to ease up on those sort of boundaries that they might have around this this thing called money. Absolutely. David and I have been using the somewhat offhanded tagline of, we just want people to come out of the closet about money. <laughs> just, yeah. just talk about it. You don't have to get to an end result necessarily. Just share your situation and what, what you find that other people are doing that's working for them. Maybe you try that or you know, share what's not working for you so your friends and family can avoid that as well. Totally. It's, it's all a form of living your truth. Mm-hmm. And I think if we're going to go with the, the closet analogy, like <laughs> A lot of living in the closet is about wanting to pretend 
and please take this, you know, with every caveat for like a straight cis woman talking about her interpretation of what it means to live <laughs> in the closet, that there is a sense of of saying, hey, my outside self needs to look a certain way, mm-hmm. but my, I'm going to keep my inside self protected here because I don't feel like my outside self is, or I don't feel like my inside self would be accepted mm-hmm. if I were to to share it with the outside world. I see that with so many of my clients in terms of where they're at with money is that there's something about their relationship or their circumstances with money that feels really vulnerable mm. to them. Yes. Yeah, and, and they wish it, it looked a certain way and they are perceptive enough to be able to sort of like manipulate how and what they share about their life based on how they think it will be received. But that that vulnerable part still stays locked away, unable to to really be received and embraced and supported. And that's a, a really hard step. But I think if if people are listening and they've sort of made that that leap to being out about their identity and living their human truth, um, that we just want to look for ways to extend that into their financial lives, into people's financial lives, so that they can feel like, all right, you know what? Living my truth is is a full 360 degree experience. How am I not living my financial truth? What is it that I'm keeping locked away when really I want to look for ways to take those steps so that I can feel like I'm able to say, hey, this is what I'm I'm struggling with or this is what I need and this is what is important to me and I want to learn how to get there and to feel confident and safe that somebody's going to be on the other side of that picking that truth up and helping them to get where they want to go. I, I love everything you just be. said. I, I love everything you just said. I've been, I'm nodding my head so much. I'm going to have a sore neck tomorrow. <laughs> so so you, you mentioned a while back about financial or, or about stress in general. Um, and then you mentioned relationships. And I know that this is a hot topic, especially for LGBTQ people, gay and lesbian couples, maybe especially because our relationships are more and more becoming validated. What do you think can help reduce stress among LGBTQ couples? So let me sort of back up if it's okay and just say, what are the particular stressors that I see routinely? And one in particular is that there is not the same. And it's tough because I I also see this softening in a non-LGBTQ community as well for heterosexual couples. But there is a sense of two individuals coming together who are each independent and self-supporting individuals who have their own sort of way and they expect to keep things relatively separate with money. And this isn't for all couples, obviously, but it is, it's one thing that I, I see a lot because there isn't that clear sort of established model for what the individuals in a couple, how they they partner and what that partnership looks like. A colleague of mine uh, in the couples therapy space refers to it as stance, stance, and dance, meaning like, I'm going to sort of hold this position, you're going to hold this position, and these is, this is how these two positions oh, gotcha. move together. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. I think that is much less established when it comes to gay and lesbian couples. So they can get together and it, it's you know, it's sort of like that awful question, like, who's the man in your relationship? Like, that's completely offensive. Right. But there is an understanding that that's based on in terms of like, what are the traditional roles that people have in a couple? And that is not 
that doesn't exist, right? One has to create that individually. And so I see because people get so sort of closed down or, or just very anxious and they have a hard time sharing their vulnerability around money, that there's not enough communication when it comes to that. And, and not even enough self-knowledge in many cases in terms of this is who I am personally and financially, and this is sort of how I want to be in this relationship. And this is what I would hope I would get from my partner and how my partner would be. So we just don't even have the ability to articulate who we are and what we need. And certainly we don't have an established platform for even having that conversation. Right. Right. Your analogy there or the picture that you drew of this stance, stance and dance, what is so interesting is as LGBT couples that so many of us, because our relationships weren't recognized legally, we often have lived, in some cases, years or decades in this, this is my finances, that's your finances, we don't combine our finances because we can't. And then all of a sudden, we're being told, well, you can now. And we're like, well, well we've been doing it separately for the last 15 years. Why, do, why bother? Why make any changes now? But what you're saying is that this can actually, having those conversations, starting to uncover and be vulnerable, can reduce the financial stress you're having in your relationship. Precisely. And even uh, in couples where one partner does support the other, that is still not often seen. It's, it's still very much a separation internally, meaning one person is probably dictating all of the financial decisions and the other person may be completely in the dark. You know what I mean? So it's, right. it's not even a partnership. And when I, I work with couples, gay, straight, you know, whatever it is that we're, we're sort of working on, I'm thinking about it as a system um, and how the different components of the system come together and move together in order to, to function well. And with all couples, I advocate that there be five sort of components to what we would consider a financially healthy relationship. Number one is that it needs to be equal. So both people have equal power in the decision-making dynamic. Doesn't mean they're doing all the same things. Um, there can be specialization, but it's not like the person who makes the most money or the person who gets the most anxious is the one who gets to call the shots. Next, it needs to be inclusive, meaning both people really need to participate. You can't exclude one person. One person can't opt out. It needs to be transparent, meaning that there is access to information that each person, again, they can have their sort of separate spheres, but there's not anything that's hidden from either partner. It needs to be sustainable. So it's not overly burdensome on one of them. And finally, it needs to be flexible so it can change in terms of circumstances or needs as they evolve. I love that. I feel like we're getting counseled right now. What do you charge for couples counseling? $200 a session. <laughs> nice. <laughs> no, but I think everything you just said is great there. And what I find fascinating, um, and I'm glad that we covered this topic because no matter how many times David and I cover the topic of how should couples talk about marriage or how can we improve our conversation about marriage or how do we even bring it up? People in our community continue to ask, how should we as a couple engage with our money. Um, there seems to be this completely lack of understanding of how to do that. And so everything you just said was 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 phenomenal. Great. Thank you. Absolutely. 
So pretty much anywhere you go as an LGBT person online, to when you go to an LGBT resource, you're seeing politics and pop culture. And so how does Prudential or... Uh, free guys. The, the, right. How do <laughs> we make the case that your financial future is as important and some cases more important than pop culture or what's currently going on in politics? I think the first thing that you do is simply to exist and share your truth. So as long as you're talking about why, like, what is it that personally interested you in looking at money and the role of money in your lives? Why do you think this conversation is particularly pressing or not getting enough attention within the LGBTQ community. And coming from your place of membership and and holding a place in that community. So, you know, I think has more weight coming from you than it does from me in that sense, or coming from an institution like Prudential. Like you guys are are seeing this information. You are saying, hey, people, like, let's gather around here. There's something that is really helpful here. So you being part of it is one thing. And I think, too, it is, I think it's an evolution, honestly. I, I think that because we are in this time of enormous cultural transition and institutional transition relative to the LGBTQ community, that there's a tremendous amount of noise. And a lot of that noise is political. And it all seems like, and the legislation is important and, and it needs advocacy and we need to, to pay attention to that. But I think sometimes when we have our eye on the, the big stuff, we're not necessarily noticing the smaller, quieter application mm-hmm. of that stuff. And how, like, what kind of a difference does it mean to be able to have joint accounts and to be able to have survivor benefits and you know, things that are pretty boring in general for everyone. What? Really? Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't agree. <laughs> well, I just mean when, when one is sort of right. like listening to those things that are sort of loud and screaming for our attention, it needs to be, we either have a really strong natural interest in those things, or if we don't, it can be, you know, like, I'll just get to that tomorrow. Mm-hmm, right. It goes on the eternal tomorrow list. And so I I do think that there's opportunity for institutions, and that's part of what Prudential is doing too, is saying, hey, look, we are interested in how this is working for you and what's not working and and being able to even quantify like the number of people who have financial products or have certain types of retirement or or long-term savings accounts to get people thinking like, hey, do I have, which group am I in? Everybody, you know, humans are such social creatures any kind of group, anyone wants to self-select and be like, I am in this group or I am in this other group. So maybe you think you're the only one who doesn't have a savings account. And then you're like, oh my goodness, 50% of the people in my community don't have one of these. Like, what does that even mean? And that can help us when we we connect what we're going through individually with part of a, a group identity, that can help us get fired up because suddenly now that is political, right? So it's not just like, oh, I'm bad or I'm lazy and I don't, I haven't been taking care of my finances. It's like, hey, wait a second. What sort of 
structural challenges is my community facing? And I'm fired up and mad as hell. And I want to make sure that people are providing us with relevant products and make sure that we're not facing any sort of systemic barriers to accessing these types of things. And and if that's the way that that we get people to engage and to start to make those individual changes that that add up and contribute to the bigger social forces, then I say like, great, let's do it that way. So I appreciate uh, your answer. And as you're listening to this, I want you to know that John and I asked this question from a selfish standpoint, that we asked this because we know that if you're listening to this podcast, you're concerned about your financial situation, improving it in some manner. And this is the kind of information that will help strengthen our community. When we know that our brothers and sisters and our trans folk and individuals who are out there and they are dealing with some of these institutional issues and they can't make progress, it's partly because we're not sharing or not aware of this kind of information. The fact that so many of us in our community don't have a checking or savings account, don't have access to retirement accounts, don't have access to health care through our employer. A lot of that is the reason why our community sometimes feels so desperate to want to focus on the political side and sometimes focus on the stuff that can make the stress go away temporarily. And so please share this kind of data with your partner, with your friends. This kind of knowledge is what's important for our community to grow and strengthen financially. And you can be an advocate for that. And we would appreciate it. Yeah. Here, here. <laughs> here, here. <laughs> I like talked myself onto a, a soapbox there. I started to get a little sweaty and had to stand up. <laughs> but yes, you're absolutely right. Like it is something where, and this is so true when it comes to money, people, they feel personal shame and embarrassment around the ways that they struggle. And they feel isolated in particular and and assume that everybody else, because remember, so many people are sort of living there. Is it terrible for me to say financial closet? Can I just go with that metaphor? Just go with it. I give you approval. Go with that. If anybody challenges you, you, refer to us. (laughs) Thank you for your permission, Eric. Um, Appreciate it. We are presenting our closeted selves financially. And this is true gay, straight, cis community. Like we are... So many of us presenting this this very closeted view of ourselves financially. Um, and what that does is keep us individually and collectively disempowered. And it's when we share even with one person and get that help, support, and recognition from another person so that we feel like we can be our stronger selves and to have the answers we need, to have the accountability we need, and to be visible and to show up as people who are are living their truth in terms of what they're working on, that allows us then to bring that truth and expand it out so that it includes the community. It, it include it, it reaches that macro level where suddenly mm-hmm. it does become as pressing and important as politics. It does become a wave of consumer advocacy of saying like, you know what, this is how I have been locked out of having access to these resources and products that will make a difference. Here's why we need to band together in order to advocate 
for the solutions that we need. Um, and it all starts with just person-to-person visibility and sharing and then expanding that outward. Exactly. David and I say that all the time. Just, you know, just get a, just get one buddy. You don't have to tell the world. You don't mm-hmm. have to, um, you know, you don't have to come out of the closet on, on RuPaul's Drag Race, <laughs> mm-hmm. so to speak. Just tell, find a friend, whether it's a mentor or a peer or someone you can confide in. And then, you know, it takes that burden off you and you can start to make progress once you're starting to, once you start to be authentic with your, even your, just yourself. Yes. Yes, so, it does. We covered a lot of information today. Where can our listeners go if they want to get more information about the financial wellness census and also more information on how to achieve financial wellness? They can start by going to www.prudential.com slash campaign slash state dash of dash us to learn more. So prudential.com slash campaign slash state dash of dash us. That's wonderful. And we will link that up in the show notes because, of course... Thank you. So we, much easier than people trying <laughs> yep. to get it verbally. And if you're listening on, on your mobile device, that link will also be in the in the show notes that's available on your mobile device. Exactly. So any last thoughts, Amanda, on uh, on our discussion and how people can achieve financial wellness from your perspective? Really, I think that, first of all, I'm so glad that your podcast exists. I'm so glad that you guys are such fierce advocates for this conversation. Thank you. Um, It's more meaningful than you know, because when people are looking for a way into this individual journey called financial wellness, the first thing that people look for is somebody with whom they can relate or to whom they can relate. And so I am so grateful for those folks who make it their mission to just show up as who they are and to include financial wellness as part of the story that they tell and that they invite other people into in terms of who they are. I think for people who are listening, who are interested in working on this, you know, it starts with receiving. So, you know, like people who are listening to a podcast, that's, that's a sort of receptive way of getting that information. The next step is to, to start to connect, to start to engage and participate in that conversation. So like there's the Facebook group or having that conversation more with people in your life. Like, you know, I have a lot of folks who ask me about what books to read or people they should follow. And it's, that's all really helpful, but, but we always want to make sure that we're taking that next step, which is how do we then translate that into something that we're really working with actively in our lives. Awesome. Yep, definitely. I don't think anything happens without action, right? We can hope and wish and pray for change, but change doesn't happen until we actually start to do something. So absolutely, let's let's engage ourselves and then let's engage our community. (laughs) Cool. Well, thank you very much, Amanda. We appreciate having you on. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Actually, and and one last thought, Amanda, if anyone in our community wants to connect with you, uh, where can they find you? I have a website. They can go to amandaclayman.com. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Amanda, for sharing such a wealth of insight on what financial wellness is and how those of us in the LGBTQ community can also achieve it. Thank you, too, to Prudential for conducting the 2018 Financial Wellness Census and including the LGBTQ community in your study and for sponsoring this podcast. To our listeners, if you'd like more information about what financial wellness is and how you, too, can achieve it, please visit prudential.com forward slash campaign forward slash state hyphen of hyphen us. Thank you.